Freedom's rallying call starts with the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa as Canadian citizens rally in solidarity with the truckers throughout Canada. Well, can America's convoy of truckers be far behind? Uh, we're hearing multiple reports that things are in the works. Well, the thing about it is our truckers represent all of us. They're man, they're woman, they're black, brown, and white. They represent every facet of society. Well, people everywhere are rising to the sound of freedom as we see mask and vaccine mandates begin to fall. Yet, we got a question. Did the science change? Is this from the kindness of their heart? Or did politicians and bureaucrats just realize it's an election year? Well, on Viewpoint this Sunday, Dr. Peter McCullough is here for a critically important talk on the long haul complications of cardiovascular disease and COVID. This is from a new study published just days ago in Nature Medicine that has everyone's attention. And then Colonel Lawrence Sellen is here. He's one of the best at analyzing world events. We'll get into the latest on Russia's intent on Ukraine and the United States response. We'll then turn our attention to China. The question we present is why was Beijing and the CCP rewarded with the Olympics after the turn of recent events? Many were calling for a cross-the-board boycott of these games. We'll also take a close look at the internal struggles for Xi Jinping and the CCP. Can a possible uprising of the people in China be far behind? We'll take all that up next on Viewpoint this Sunday. the bias, the lies and deceit, and bring forth real talk from real people about real news, providing the out loud truth and capturing the essence of a new generation all in a fast-paced hour. This is Viewpoint This Sunday. Thank you for joining us this weekend on the news magazine Viewpoint this Sunday. Uh, you hear the show every Sunday at 10 a.m. And uh, there's an encore at 6 p.m. Eastern time. You hear us anywhere in the world on iHeartRadio or our terrific apps, by the way. Uh, they're great media player. Many, many ways to listen to America Out Loud Talk Radio for sure. Now, the show goes directly to podcast networks just after 3 p.m. Eastern time. And you'll find it on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. Well, listen, we've all become familiar with the term, the long hauler COVID syndrome. There are several things about this. I mean, you get the brain fog, you get fatigue for sure, a weakness, uh, loss of smell, a lot of people, and the heart is the big problem or the big deal here. I really want to talk about that next. This is potentially, in my mind, one of the most important segments we could probably have on this. Uh, the headlines were very ominous. A heart problem surge in COVID patients up to 12 months after infection. Now, the study was published uh, just on February 7th, just a few days back here in Nature Medicine. Uh, and uh, let me just read you this here. Any infection with COVID-19, regardless of severity, seems to increase the risk of heart ailments for survivors. According to the study now that one researcher called Stunnen, uh, of course, a lot of people are calling it that when they see it. The study found an increased risk of 20 different heart and vessel issues for those who have the virus a year earlier. 
there's no one better to talk about this topic in my mind uh, than uh, Dr. Peter McCullough. He's an academic internist, cardiologist, and epidemiologist from Dallas, Texas. Uh, Dr. McCullough's been on the front lines throughout the COVID, uh, well, I always call it, Dr. McCullough, a COVID exercise we've been through over the last couple of years. This thing never stops. It, there's always drama around the corner. Now, let me just tell folks, this study found that those who recovered from the virus had, uh, the, the numbers are staggering, about a 63% higher risk of having a heart attack and a 52% greater risk of stroke one year later. And they went on to say that those who recovered had a 72% higher risk of heart failure. This is potentially the most aggressive study to date in measuring the long haul complications of cardiovascular disease and COVID. What was your initial reaction in seeing this study? This had confirmed a lot of what we had seen in clinical practice over the last two years, Malcolm, that patients seem to have an increased risk for almost all cardiovascular events across the board after they've suffered COVID-19. Now we dive deep into the data, uh, uh, the, uh, almost all the risk is for people sick enough to be hospitalized with COVID-19. I don't want people to think that, uh, you know, community COVID-19 that people manage at home puts them at high risk. Almost all the loading of risk was in people sick enough to be hospitalized. Now that's a proxy for a big load of the virus uh, there is deposition of the spike protein in the human body that we know about after the respiratory infection shown by Dr. Patterson in the past up to 16 months after severe infection that requires hospitalization. Almost those uh, in the hospital, almost all of them are in the hospital as a product of not receiving early treatment. But we do know uh, by this study, it's clear that there were multiples of risk for myocardial infarction, stroke, for cardiac death, uh, development of cardiac arrhythmias, one being atrial fibrillation, and then importantly, uh, a diagnosis of myocarditis. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time on this. Myocarditis is being tripped off in this study by an ICD code. And when a patient is hospitalized, it's common uh, to check cardiac troponin, a blood test for heart injury. And it's been shown previously, the Chinese showed this originally, that about half of patients with acute COVID-19 in the hospital will have an elevation in cardiac troponin, but as they would with pneumococcal pneumonia or a gram-negative organism pneumonia. So it's not uh, unique to COVID-19, and it's without the other cardinal features, meaning EKG changes, changes on the echocardiogram, or damage by MRI. So I don't think it meets a definition of myocarditis from a cardiology perspective. It's simply an elevation of troponin as a proxy for how sick patients are in the ICU. I looked at the data very carefully, and that myocarditis had the lowest of all the uh, cardiovascular burdens. So I want people to understand that the real risks of COVID-19 in the hospital uh, include developing a heart attack or a stroke or cardiac death from atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and not viral attack on the myocardium. And, and this is over time, obviously, that you're saying. Now, when you to break this down, when you say uh, hospitalization, it, we're, what we're really talking about is the severity of COVID. If it was severe enough to land you in the hospital, your risk of this sort of an impact from cardiac could happen a year or two later is what I'm reading. But but here, here's what I want to just ask you or question or push back a little bit on. As I understand it now, with this study, and correct me on this, but the, the merging of the, the numbers in the study were the non-hospitalized, the hospitalized, intensive care, mild and severe cases. Wasn't this a factor in the study's findings? It, it's true, but remember, somebody would have to come to clinical attention 
So in this data capture system, if someone went to a, a urgent care and had a positive test, went home and got early home treatment through one of the telemedicine networks, they would never even come up in the study. So these are people who went to the hospital, they were sick enough, and they were either discharged from the ER or they were admitted. So it's a really different population than community-acquired COVID. You know, most patients who call me, uh, Malcolm, they never end up in the hospital. They go to an urgent care, some self-test at home, and they really stay out of the uh, data capture that, you know, and they wouldn't have an opportunity to fall into the study. Okay. So I understood this when I, I mean, I've read through the whole study. I've looked at the analysis. Uh, I understood this. What I got out of it was a, a, a more of a blanket uh, problem for society with the cardiovascular, but you're, I'm getting the sense from you now, you're saying that yes, yeah, severe hospitalization cases for sure, but you're saying the milder cases should not be in fear of this. Well, the milder cases, uh, one would look at this and say, listen, the milder cases would not even get into the data set here because people actually have to be seen and examined. They have to get ICD codes applied. There has to be billing. I mean, those are sick enough. So we don't really know yet then, right? We don't know. Well, well we have some data just on pure community mm-hmm. COVID, a paper published by Joy and colleagues in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology Imaging. And she basically proved that community COVID at home does not injure the heart. I thought that was a very reassuring Hmm. study. This study shows people sick enough to actually have a clinical encounter, get ICD codes applied, be hospitalized. And I looked at the supplemental tables of this paper and it was clear. They had outpatients and inpatients. All the loading of risk came on the inpatients. See, I, I think you're clearing up something that I think I've seen a lot of the news reports and nobody's really saying what you're saying. I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing that they're really putting us out there more as a blanket statement like, oh, my God, the sky is falling. We're all in trouble. We're all going to die of heart attacks and strokes. You're saying that we're, really this is uh, it sounds like it's more fear. And I think it's just, you know, people just don't dive into and read the data because they're not trained in epidemiology and statistics as someone in my a group would be. But let me give you a practical example. I just had a patient, a friend of mine. She's in her 50s. She's been uh, double vaccinated. She gets COVID-19. She's sick for about 11 days. She finally has chest pain, uh, difficulty breathing, mm. goes to the hospital, right. has a CT scan. She's not admitted, but she actually has a clinical encounter. So she would have developed all these ICD codes to fit this study. She is diagnosed with a blood clot that's gone to the lungs and she's sent home on blood thinners. Now that's a classic example of how COVID-19, the illness, actually promoted a cardiovascular event, in this case, a blood clot that shot to the lungs. Now, this could have happened in her case, it happened on day roughly 11. But Malcolm, what this study is suggesting is this could happen at two months, three months, six months, uh, even up to a year afterwards. I think that's the important implication. Yeah. Is there a window at all from you seeing the study where you're sort of back into a safe zone? I mean, we, I, I'm sure we don't really know, but any idea, like, is it a year or two or five years later? Are you back over that hump or is this thing something you'll have to be, uh, have a threat with for your entire life? The data capture for this study was a year, but the Japanese had previously published on these late events, late strokes and heart attacks, and the window was roughly 90 days. So clinically, I've told patients, listen, you've got some uh, blockages, heart blockages, blockages of arteries to the neck, stay on aspirin 325 milligrams a day, but for 90 days uh, following the Japanese data. I, and that makes sense to me. 
but we have information that I've presented on the McCullough report. I've had Bruce Patterson actually tell mm -hmm. us, he did the study, the spike protein is in the human body after the respiratory infection for up to 15 months. There's now a paper by Chertow and colleagues from the National Institutes of Health on the ResearchGate preprint server that shows in autopsies, people sick enough to be hospitalized and die, that this, the virus is fully recoverable in tissues up to 230 days. That one person who died at 230 days, he was a transplant patient, he was immunocompromised. But Malcolm, we are learning the virus is in the body much longer than we right. originally thought. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let me ask you now, a lot of people can relate to what I'll say right now. In the case, and you know the story, let me just use as, as an, an experiment here, my wife, for instance, okay? Um, a young woman in her 50s, uh, you know, she was pretty sick in the hospital. Uh, as you know, for 10 days, ICU, uh, I would say escaped to death because things were pretty grave at one point, although we got the ivermectin, all the various pieces in the, the early protocol treatment, which saved her life, by the way, in this particular case. But let me use her as an experiment because a lot of people can relate to that. Uh, what kind of risk is someone like that, uh, uh, you know, from this study and from the long-term complications of cardiovascular disease? Okay. She would have been included in this data set. Okay. This would have been a perfect example. Okay. Uh, she had high, she had severe symptoms. She had high risk features. Uh, there was some impairment of chest mechanics from other problems to begin with. So, so it was yeah. a setup here to have respiratory compromise, which she had. Um, so she comes in the hospital, she gets high quality treatment. She had high quality pre-hospital treatment, does not require the ventilator and gets sent home. She gets sent home and has a prolonged recovery. In the following year, we would conclude that if she did have a heart attack, if she did have a stroke, develop atrial fibrillation, heart failure, uh, blood clot, that actually it probably is causally related to having a severe COVID infection. Right, right. Now you say take an aspirin to 325 every day. She should be doing that and people like her. 90 days, and that's just empiric based on the Japanese data. I've been in communication with Eric Grimaldi. Eric leads the <laughs> treatment domiciliary group for Italy. Uh, you know, in Italy, they use 700 milligrams a day of aspirin. They wow. you know, different doses of aspirin across the world. The United States, a baby aspirin is 81. That's our standard cardiovascular dose. Right. But based on what we know and the virus, the virus drives blood clotting unlike any other uh, virus we've seen. <laughs> Most of the events, by the way, in this cardiac study are driven by blood clots. Blood clots cause heart attacks, they cause strokes. Uh, they're related to, and obviously are the cause of pulmonary embolism, deep venous thrombosis. And we know aspirin has a modest and acceptable uh, therapeutic mm -hmm. preventive effect. But when there's a clinical blood clot, in the case of my patient, Malcolm, uh, I didn't fool around. We use uh, uh, prescription blood thinners, in this case, a Pixaban yeah. or Elephant. So you're, you're, so you're saying 90 days, and then after that, not so concerned with the aspirin? After not the so nine concerned. Okay. Uh, patients with baseline blockages, I would say return to usual aspirin dose, which is typically 81 a day or 81 every other day. Okay. All right. And, you know, I remember, as you recall, and I'm just being real here, but I remember early on while we were battling this, she had some, You and I know you might recall this, we had some, uh, she was having some chest pains and some real concerns. I actually, uh, uh, sadly, had to, I was so concerned one time, I reached out at two or three in the morning to you to make sure what we had to do. It was so severe and serious. I was afraid she was having a heart attack. Uh, that's fairly, it, that seems to be fairly normal early in the case uh, for somebody like that who had it severe. So she, she could be a real, she has to watch out. She's a real candidate for this problem, isn't she? People like her, I'm saying. 
He is, but as time goes on, the mm -hmm. risks uh, almost certainly progressively go down. I don't want people okay. to think there are time bombs out there. So well, that's what a lot of people think, I'm telling you, because I've already had a ton of emails into the last three days on this, and people think they're time bombs. You know, I just think we have to be responsive to the data. I was on Laura Ingram recently, and I used that term. You know, we just need to be humble and responsive to the data. Right. Patients are reaching out to me and say, listen, I just ended up in atrial fibrillation. I had that actually uh, uh, just a night ago. A patient of mine was in the ER with atrial fibrillation, and the wife asked, was this related to COVID a couple months ago? And I said, yeah, I think it is. It, mm -hmm. And so that's how we apply emerging sources of information like you're presenting today. All right. Yeah, this is important. Now, let me ask you. OK, so let's talk about a lot of people listening can relate to the example I just put out there, because a lot of people got caught into that whirlwind of covid and ended up in the hospital for lot, for many, many different reasons. But let's talk about what changes people need to make. I, I want to talk because uh, there's value here. What changes should we be making uh, to our lifestyle, Dr. McCullough, in a post-COVID world? It, I, I ask that kind of two-pronged, one in general, but another for these severe patients, as, as I use my wife as an example, uh, you know, what kind of changes in lifestyle in, in relation to cardiovascular heart that we should be aware of, that we should be doing? Uh, what steps can we take? Everybody ought to be uh, really working on their cardiovascular fitness. Once I finish today, I'm going to go try to run up the mountain and back down, give myself a good <laughs> cardiovascular uh, fitness workout. Uh, you know, cardiovascular fitness is part of recovery of COVID-19. The other thing, and I give credit to Dr. Yvette Lozano in Dallas, she was the first to discover this, is, you know, blood sugar and sugary foods are strongly related to bad outcomes. The last thing we want to see people do is go back and drink regular Cokes, uh, sweets and treats. People need to stay on a high quality diet. That means high quality sources of protein, fish, beans, nuts, egg whites, non-fat dairy, occasional lean meats, and fresh fruits and vegetables. Stay away from sugars, starches, and saturated fat. So a high quality diet, aerobic and strength fitness, and be prepared. You know, with Omicron, it broke through. So both you and your spouse could get COVID-19 a second time. Now we want to be able to get through this uh, without any more complications. All right. Now, when we talk about, I, I want to read this statement to you from the study, the authors here, and it, it talks about the rise of cardiovascular diseases. You talk about fear and you, you said some things earlier about being humble and, and really understanding, which I really respect that, the magnitude of what we're talking about. So much is taken out of context, which is why I'm having this conversation with you to put it back in context. This statement says this, this is really something. Governments and health systems around the world should be prepared to deal with the likely significant contribution of the COVID-19 pandemic to a rise in the burden of cardiovascular diseases. And they, they speak of a, a, a real severe outbreak in our country, back to the time bomb. Is that overstating the case here? I think the reason why they're putting that out there is because of this actuarial change. You know, we've already been primed with uh, data that's come from U.S. insurers and now insurance companies in Holland showing a shift upward in mortality ages 18 to 49 is a one group reported in the United States. And now the insurers don't think it's death due to COVID. But the question is, could you have had prior COVID and now been primed for a cardiovascular death or uh, another uh, type of um, ischemic stroke or another type of cause of death. People are also conjecturing whether or not it's related to the vaccines, since the vaccines, you know, have the right. similar mechanism. 
And so at this point in time, there, you know, that's a statement about why this could be important. And I think it's true. They did calculate burden per thousand. And, um, you know, it's hard to translate that into the real world. Uh, we've made progress in cardiovascular disease. You know, uh, when we were kids, Malcolm, the rates of smoking in the United States were close to, you know, 50%. And rates of uh, contemporary rates of smoking now are below 20%. Uh, that's been changed when we were younger, uh, the rates of obesity were only about 10%. And right now the rates of obesity are about 30%. Yes. Now we over, now we overlie COVID. And so now we have a situation, uh, by the way, the CDC had estimated that 146 million people had already had COVID by October in the United States. And now with the Omicron outbreak, it was thought another 20% of the population, one in five have had the Omicron variant. Right. You know, you, you mentioned smoking there. I have to tell you something here. They talk about that actually uh, in here. The, in the post-COVID era, COVID might become the highest risk factor for cardiovascular outcomes. More, They're saying more than smoking and obesity. In other words, you they're comparing this, as I've read through this, and you, I'm sure you've seen this yourself, that they're saying you're at greater risk than if you were just obese and smoking and like had really crappy health, uh, that you're at more risk just from this COVID factor. And this was a Cleveland Clinic uh, a cardiologist who said, what do you make of, make of that? I think it's an overstatement <laughs> because COVID-19 is a one-time exposure. Uh, maybe there's a second minor infection with Omicron. You know, obesity is typically carried lifelong. And atherosclerosis, for instance, is a lifelong process of cholesterol deposition in the arteries. The same thing is true with smoking. Smoking uh, is many times, we, we actually calculate it what's called pack years. How many packs per day for how many years did you smoke? And so these more chronic exposures in cardiovascular disease add up, I think, much bigger than a one-time exposure, uh, for instance, of having COVID-19. All right. While I can, I've got two, uh, I, I want to bounce two listener questions at you, please, that I think I picked out from a whole lot, and I, I'd like you to respond to them. This one's from Joanne. It says, uh, thanks to your website platform and the Good Doctors Protocol, my husband and I, who are in our late 70s, survived COVID, and she was employed and everything. I'm reading that haven't had COVID, my chances of heart problems are greater. Who better to ask than Dr. McCullough? Or is this another ploy to get more people vaccinated? What do you say to that? Well, the vaccines have their own cardiovascular risk, which is almost certainly greater than the respiratory infection. We now have a thousand papers on vaccine injuries in the preprint or in the fully peer-reviewed PubMed system now, Malcolm, 200 papers on myocarditis or heart injury. So I can tell you the vaccine, which has been applied much more broadly than the respiratory infection, has a much greater cardiovascular risk in my estimation than having the respiratory infection alone. I think you're right. I think uh, many are still uh, in the mode of trying to convince as many others to still take the vaccine. Yeah. Uh, my viewpoint is that's ill-advised and, and there should be no commentary in trying to use this as motivation to take a vaccine. Remember, the vaccines have never been demonstrated in randomized trials right. to reduce the risk of death or hospitalization. Well, that's why I wanted to get these out there. And let me read you this one from Dean, please. He says, I can't express how thankful I am for the work you're all doing here and speaking the truth. 
And, and we get a lot of out calling for that, uh, for sure. I read an article this morning. Again, see, everybody's reading this study, and they're all interpreted a different way, which is why I really wanted to get you on here to talk about this. He says that uh, people infected with COVID will be a high risk for cardiovascular events going forward. Number one, he says, we probably have already answered some of that. Is this true? And if so, I am 45 and just recovered from Omic uh, the Omicron. I am unvaccinated and do not know if I was exposed to any other variant. What can I do to keep myself? safe from uh, one of the other complications, or is this what is common, blaming all future injuries from the vaccine on the virus instead? What do you think of that? It's possible. We've already seen that right now, that there is this kind of shifting uh, justification or attempts to normalize vaccine injuries onto the respiratory infection. I think we need to separate them. With the vaccine, the events seem to be explosive within about 30 days of a vaccine administration. With COVID-19, the respiratory illness may be about a 90-day window. So I look at temporal association. Uh, there may be cases like my patient where the problem was, was antecedent vaccination. Mm -hmm. And she asked me, she goes, was it related to the vaccine? I said, listen, you've loaded your body twice with spike protein. Now you've had the respiratory infection. And sure enough, you end up with a blood clot. I mean, we know the spike protein causes blood clotting. And maybe this is the problem is, uh, in fact, patients previously vaccinated who now have superimposed COVID-19. Yeah. You know, I seen the other day, and I'm sure you did as well. I just wanted to touch real fast. The CDC, uh, they changed uh, just a few days ago here, the COVID-19 vaccine schedule. Now they're pushing those final shots for the uh, mRNA vaccine and the J&J up a couple of months. Uh, they're still pushing this, still pushing vaccines, still pushing boosters. Do you see any end to this? We're seeing it right now. The UK has dropped all mandates, England, Ireland, Scotland. So did Sweden. And I think when the mandates go away, no one's going to take the vaccines. I mean, what about Canada and the U.S.? I've, I've been interviewing those truckers up in Canada. What about that? What about that? The well, Canada and the U.S.? We heard Saskatchewan and Alberta, you know, Ottawa is under a fierce uh, con freedom convoy uh, effectively shutting down the city and public health officials are starting to talk with uh, uh, lead scientist, Paul Alexander, Roger Hodgkinson. I'll have them on my show this weekend uh, tomorrow. And, uh, you know, it is a incredible historical event. And I was on with Dan Bongino and Fox News who focused on it. I've seen Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson. And interesting, uh, Christoph Ploth from Germany says the German news is reporting the Canadian convoy as the truckers who are protesting icy roads. Can you believe that? Yeah, well, I can believe it. And uh, we're seeing pushback like we've never seen. I'm so proud of our Canadian uh, brothers and sisters up there. And we're going to begin to um, get many reports in here. We're going to see a very like movement, which is already uh, sparking here in the States to push back on this overreach. And, you know, Dr. McCullough, this is far more than just about a vaccine or a mandate at this point. This is about over control and uh, people wanting their liberties back, period, end stop right there. And I think you're seeing that they pushed a little too hard, uh, I think, in this particular case, and they're pushing back. Uh, the final point, and I really appreciate you clarifying so many things. This, this was important to me, this segment, because of the, I can just see the response in the last several days. They end here, and I just want you to have a final comment on this, about this outlook. The authors of the study here say this, what we're seeing isn't good. COVID-19 can lead to serious cardiovascular complications and death. 
the heart goes, the heart does not regenerate or easily mend after heart damage. These are diseases that will affect people for a lifetime. The authors say their findings suggest millions of COVID-19 survivors could suffer long-term consequences, straining health systems for years to come. I mean, they have a very ominous report here. Governments and health systems around the world should be prepared to deal with the likely significant contribution to the pandemic to rise in the burden of cardiovascular diseases. As soon as I read that stuff, I said, OMG, I got to get Dr. McConnell to talk about this here. So this study is being highly, uh, it's one of the most aggressive studies. 154,000 are involved in this study here. You agree with, I think you probably don't agree with that outlook. Uh, final thought on that? You know, I tend to be conservative. Uh, you know, I've uh, been a news commentator now for two years, and I go back through a montage of videos. And you know, where did I overstate things? If anything, I tend to understate things, and I'm, I'm willing to upgrade. I would tend to understate here and just remind people. You know, these are ICD codes. These are not adjudicated cases. People aren't looking into uh, other competing factors. Uh, you know, this is kind of a big data from automated data systems. It, it gives a hint that we've got a problem, but it's far from definitive. And uh, I tend to discount authors' conclusions because they tend to sensationalize their own results in order to uh, potentially get more attention to their work. And, and in COVID-19, if anything I've learned is just look at the data and the tables, look within the supplemental tables. It was looking within the supplemental tables, which led me to conclude that the problem is in severe patients who are hospitalized. So everybody listening to this, you know, this study really applies to people sick enough to be hospitalized. Those of you who got through it at home, it largely doesn't apply to you. All right. It's good to know. And thank you, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, for clearing a lot of that up. Now, to remind everybody, the McCullough Report uh, plays uh, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, Saturday and Sunday on America Out Loud Talk Radio. There's an encore at 7 p.m. as well. Two and seven goes to podcast late Mondays. So you can catch that. It's a powerful show. It always is. And the outreach is incredible. Uh, the entire lineup on the weekends is pretty fascinating at America Out Loud Talk Radio. I encourage all of you to check it out. And, and see what you think and let others know this is the place of liberty and justice. Uh, speaking of which, you, you've got to hang right there now. We're going to pause a moment here, but you're going to hear in moments here, Colonel Lawrence Sellen joins us, and it is always a treat to have him on, I'll tell you. This is going to be quite fascinating because talking about viruses, you've been hearing about the hemorrhagic fever virus and him and the Nipah virus and all these other uh, potential problems out of China, and then we have our athletes over there. Well, there's a lot of concerns right now, and uh, Colonel Selin is an expert in uh, Chinese relations, and I want to talk to him about this, even talk about the people pushing back on Xi Jinping and the uh, China Communist Party. Very fascinating information I have on that, want to talk to you about. And then, of course, we have the Ukraine-Russia, which uh, Colonel Selin is an expert in as well. We'll talk about that, and uh, the White House is calling it a false flag operation. A uh, lot to talk about there, friends. Uh, stay right there. More Viewpoint uh, in just a moment. The America Out Loud talk radio app is on Android or Apple. It's the perfect way to listen in to the new generation of talk shows and hosts who are ready to inform and inspire. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 112 times per month. But by simply keeping our immune system strong, we can stay healthy and put our worries at ease. One little known way to do this is by taking AC11 a patented supplement from a plant in the Amazon rainforest. Studied for over 20 years and backed by over 40 scientific peer-reviewed studies, 
taking AC11 has been proven to extend the life of immune cells called leukocytes, allowing you to boost immunity naturally. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of AC11. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America out loud. We are the voice of a nation, the American nation that is. This is Malcolm Out Loud. I invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com where the fight for liberty and justice continues. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to Viewpoint this Sunday. It is Malcolm Out Loud here, yours truly, and thank you as always uh, for being with us on the mission here, my fellow Americans, appreciate it very much. This is another very important part of what I really want to accomplish today with you uh, and talk about some of the happenings, not just in Ukraine and Russia and what's developing there, but in China for sure. Got a lot there to talk about there. And, you know, I was really excited to have on here with us again here. Uh, Colonel Lawrence Sellen is here. Uh, always just a great voice to have on on these kinds of topics here. Now, to be sure with you, uh, uh, Colonel Sellen served in both Iraq and Afghanistan. He worked as a research physiologist at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. Has a pretty good sense of things uh, when it comes to these kinds of uh, claims. And, and um, uh, Colonel Sellen, thank you for joining us on Viewpoint this Sunday. It is always a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much, Malcolm. Glad to be on your program. Uh, so let's start now with the hot button. Uh, we haven't talked in a while, and I'm very anxious uh, to talk to you about the Ukraine and Russia. And uh, so there was a statement put out by the White House on a false flag operation, which was pretty stunning. Uh, the uh, gentleman, the spokesperson there, Ned Price, in fact, that's who it was. Uh, he said the Biden administration uh, said that uh, uh, he, he says that Russia is planning what's known as a false flag operation to justify a further invasion of Ukraine, meaning that they were just going to produce a video of a fake attack to kind of edge it on. It's a very weird sort of thing. I, I really didn't know where this was going. In fact, Price's words were this, uh, Ned Price. He said, we're making clear what we know so that in the event it does take place, it will be clear to the world what this actually was and what it was not. What do you make of that claim, first of all, from the White House? Uh, well, I think it's baloney, <laughs> Malcolm. Uh, the uh, Associated Press reporter called him out on this because uh, he asked for, for evidence and Ned Price couldn't produce uh, any evidence. Now, I think the starting point for me is that the U.S. intelligence agencies have become so politicized that you really can't believe anything they're saying. And I think in this case, it, it was clearly uh, nonsense. Uh, what it reminded me of is it, it was actually taken out of the playbook from the start of World War II. Adolf Hitler made the same claim. What, they, what he did was have the uh, SS arrange uh, an attack by, uh, they were actually German uh, prisoners from, from, from uh, you know, cr criminals, essentially. They dressed them up in Polish uniforms and had them attack 
a uh, German radio station on the German-Polish border. And then Hitler used that as a predicate to, to start the invasion of Poland. So it looks like, you know, it was taken out of that same playbook. And quite frankly, nobody believes it. Yeah, you know, the common denominator of a lot of these reports that come from the White House, uh, Colonel, is it's just the lies are incredible. The misinformation is it's remarkable. There's hardly anything truthful coming from them. I mean, I don't say that to be funny or smart. It, it's just it's real. It's accurate. Everything is twisted and turned. To, you, you really get no information here at all that's accurate. You know, I, I, I got to ask you this now. I say I got to ask Sal on this. The, the timing. Tell me, you've thought about this, I'm sure. Any reason why now? I mean, I'm talking Vladimir Putin now. Why he chose to challenge the United States, NATO, and the West? Why now? Because I think he thinks uh, Joe Biden is very weak and his administration is weak. And uh, he, it provides an opportunity for uh, for Russia to well, in this case, keep Ukraine from joining NATO. Uh, so I, I think that's the uh, what's behind it is that they just see great weakness and, and, and chaos in the United States at the moment, which is really self-inflicted in terms of what the Biden uh, regime is doing to the United States and the American people. So you're convinced at this point, or are you, that he is going to invade the Ukraine? The short answer is, I don't know. Uh, he's certainly poised to do so. And uh, the United States is, or I should say the Biden regime is is responding uh, very vigorously to this. And, and it actually could provide even a provocation. I, I, it also reminds me a bit of August 1914, when uh, the entire Europe stumbled into World War One. What's happening now, if I may, uh, Malcolm, is that I've been monitoring the U.S. military airlift from the United States uh, to Europe over the last uh, few days. And, and uh, in particular, there's been a large number of uh, C-17 uh, troop transport and cargo flights going into, into Europe, in particular to southeastern Poland, a, a city called Seszow. Now, as we speak, at this very moment, there is a C-17 uh, flying uh, from uh, Fort Drum in New York, to, carrying troops from the 10th Mountain Division uh, to this city in southeastern Poland. And a few days ago, I, I also saw the same type of C-17 flight going from Fort Bragg, which is the home of the 82nd uh, Airborne Division. And there were several of those go going from Fort Bragg again to the same city in southeastern Poland. I also saw uh, Marines from Camp Lejeune uh, flying to uh, uh, northern Norway. And there have been flights from Dover, Delaware, Portsmouth, Portsmouth New Hampshire, Wichita, Kansas. I saw a flight of Black Hawk helicopters, Army Black Hawk helicopters flying from Dresden, Germany, again to the southeastern uh, Polish city of Szechow. Uh, there's been 
uh, movement of F-16s to Poland and B-52s to England, uh, and also a huge number of surveillance flights along the po eastern Polish border in the Black Sea along southern Ukraine and southern Russia, uh, both you know U.S. Air Force surveillance planes and also drones. So there's been a huge amount of activity over the last few days. And this is uh, from an administration who made public announcements that they were going to, just going to send a just a, a maybe three thousand troops, uh, just because, just to, as a token show of some sort. What you're describing right now is it sounds like it's far beyond that than what's been said. Uh, number one and number two. Back to what you just said moments ago, Colonel. The the provocative nature of that almost like you're asking for it. And I started thinking a moment here. Here you have an administration who fumbled in a serious, severe way like we've never seen before in our history in Afghanistan. And now I'm thinking, well, then you got, what is it? Is he, are they being, I'm, I'm just really asking you here, are they being squeezed by the military industrial complex for a war? Or what is this all about? What am I missing here? Well, I think part of it is is uh, Biden's really bad poll numbers, but uh, I I agree with what you just said. They made such a mess of the uh, uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. I really have no faith in what they're doing. They're simply pouring these troops and and flights and surveillance uh, into Europe, and I'm I'm afraid that they really don't know what they're doing, because this is also uh, rather provocative to the Russians. And exactly. again, there may be a miscalculation on either side, and we can stumble into a very serious uh, conflict with the with Russians. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think they're push. I, I think if anything, if he was on the fence, this could be the impetus to push him right over that hurdle right there and say, you know what, I've had enough, especially since he now really does feel threatened. This was all initially about NATO being in Ukraine and we know the promises that were made there. And, you know, I have to tell you, Colonel, I, I real quickly, I will make this point here. You know, I really feel for the Ukrainian people. And I say this passionately to you as a point of reference that, you know, they were given all kinds of promises from the West and all kinds of things were said. They gave up the nuclear weapon. They did all this thing. They played along. They, the, you know, and of course, their roots are closely connected to Russia. Uh, many of them are Russian. It's, a, you know, the nationality. You have to feel for the people there and the, 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 the sense that there's going to be a lot of death with this sort of a thing. What do you what do you say about that? Well, I think it's a manageable situation that's being mismanaged by the Biden regime. Uh, you know, there is an issue that Russia has in terms of, uh, you know, NATO being on its doorstep. How would Americans feel if the Chinese military established bases in northern Mexico? So I also the, the there's an area uh, uh, in dispute in eastern Ukraine, uh, it is called the Donbass region, which is composed of the Luhansk and, and Donetsk oblasts. These are like states within Ukraine. Now they are 40% Russian. So, you know, I think there's a, a uh, from the, the Russian point of view is that the, they have Russian people in Ukraine in eastern Ukraine and want their interests defended. So I, you know, I think this is a manageable diplomatic situation that the Biden regime may simply, you know, miscalculate and mismanage and, and, and cause a conflict that is uh, unnecessary.
All right. So what they're using right now to, to close this point here up now, um, of course, uh, I mean, what would deter Putin, I would wonder, but they're talking sanctions. I don't really think Putin cares about any of that stuff. Now, they are threatening that pipeline, which is really a slap in the face to it was from the beginning to Americans where our energy prices have spiked through the roof, where he cut all the, all our energy uh, and made us vulnerable again. Uh, it, you know, and then granted the, the Russians with the Germans in this pipeline. And now, OK, so they're threatening that. But I mean, will they even stand behind that and sanctions? What's that going to do? And the question really is, will any of this deter Putin anyways? If he has his mind made up, he probably hasn't made up. No. Well, I think it reaches a point where he has to save face. Uh, and I, the, the point about oil and gas is a very important one that you just made, Malcolm, is that uh, Europe is very, very dependent on Russian gas and oil to the point that you're talking about somewhere between 50 and 90 percent uh, of the oil and, and gas, natural gas imports are coming from Russia to some of these countries. So what would happen if the, the Russians simply decided to turn that off? That's a huge threat uh, to the to Europe. Uh, and I don't think the Biden regime is particularly prepared for that type of action as well. Yeah, the circumstances are different. You just bring up a, a brilliant point, Colonel. I mean, let's just think about this. I mean, the circumstances are far different right now. I mean, it, it's a really dumb move for these European countries to be doing what they've done. It, it, Putin holds the strings on that now. You've got a lot of pain and death that could come from that. I mean, that's a point of mercy. And at the same time, um, you know, you're not going to have another alignment with the West based in Europe based on what you just described. That's that's a whole different geopolitical event, isn't it? It, it is indeed. And I, I think there uh, many of these people in the Biden uh, regime are, are, you know, making their calculations based on ancient history and not appreciating the uh, new environment in Europe and the relationship with these, these European countries have with Russia and making them vulnerable uh, economically, which is why many of these uh, Europeans are very, very reluctant to the steps that the Biden regime is taking. All right, let's turn our attention to China now. Um, I, I got to ask you right up front here. Now, the Olympics, okay, 200, and I think it's 224 or something like that, athletes we have there. I believe it's 224. It could be 242 for all I know as well. Uh, but all these athletes are there now. Uh, you know, they did, you know, well, we've been following and tracking, uh, Colonel, these other problems they're having out there, the Nipah virus, the hemorrhagic fever virus, all these other things that are taking place. Uh, that have serious implications and with far greater death rates than COVID ever was or will be. Uh, at the same time, they, I, I kind of, you know, really found it ironic. They did a democratic, uh, a, um, a uh, what do you call it, a, a boycott for the di oh, diplomat, diplomatic boycott is what they did. So maybe I, I said the other day on to listeners, maybe the politicians didn't want to get the virus and bring it back. So they let the athletes go. I know that wasn't a nice thing to say, but I really wonder where the stupidity is in this thing. Why didn't we, should we have boycotted the Olympics? I, I'm guessing maybe we should have. And was that a good move to send the athletes out there? And why are we celebrating? And I think this is the lowest ratings ever. Nobody I know has turned the Olympics on and it's sad for the athletes, but it's pretty big, big state of affairs, isn't it? I think they should have boycotted the Olympics. Uh, what they've done is reward uh, the Com Chinese Communist Party for uh, creating the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, it also puts the athletes at, at, at risk uh, in terms of the uh, 
the COVID-19, which uh, is spiking again in China, and also, as you mentioned, this hemorrhagic fever that is going around in China. And these hemorrhagic fevers can have death rates of up to 70%. So yeah. it's a really dangerous situation. And I think the diplomatic boycott uh, did nothing. And in fact, the Chinese laughed at it. And uh, it seems that the uh, politicians and diplomats were really uh, just afraid to go and just decided, well, we're going to send the athletes anyway. Yeah, that's it. Uh, no, and the, the, you're right. The death rates, uh, to be clear with everybody, what the Colonel Sellen says here is very accurate. The uh, the fatalities with these uh, the, the hemorrhagic fever is very serious stuff. Uh, and so, you know, if that ever got out and did what it did, I mean, we'd be dealing with a whole nother planet at that point. I have to tell you, you know, it seems like the future uh, is not going to be kinetic warfare, uh, traditional means of how we look at war uh, in military. It seems to be uh, certainly cyber threats, that sort of thing, but bioweapons for sure. Uh, and I'm, I've been saying right along what's happened here now with COVID is, was to me potentially an exercise or a test uh, uh, to see how the world would take uh, this, uh, that's what I see. Now, I don't know if you agree with that or not, uh, Colonel Sellen, but I believe it, it really, we have failed the test as well as a people. I, I, my, my sense is that China, we're, we're at a very strategic moment um, in this whole deal of world affairs and who's going to be in front and who's going to be behind right now. You know, there's a lot of struggles right now inside of China. I've been talking about this, and I really want to get your expertise and educate folks on what's really going on, because China is such a secretive country. There's very little that ever gets out through media sources. You have to pick and choose. When you think of the problem, think of it this way. When you think of the problems we have here in our own country of 330 million people, imagine being four times that, uh, China with about 1.4 billion people on any given day. Uh, you know, what I always question, uh, Colonel Sellen, is how long can the CCP keep the people down? And I put that question over there just a moment, but that's something I think about frequently enough. They're like, long term, how long can they really keep those people down when you think of the spirit out there of the Chinese people? And they're very entrepreneurial kind of people, in fact. Uh, I want to ask you right out, uh, big, big question at probably 50,000 feet here, is an uprising in the cards for China's future? Because I'm seeing things like this Garside here, who uh, uh, an author who wrote uh, 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 a book here about this, The Internal Struggles for China, uh, Xi Jinping and, and the transition of China to potentially a different political system. Uh, he wrote a book called The China Coup, thinking there's a coup in place that the leadership is troubled out there. Wrap that all up into a thought process here, what's really going on in China. And I don't know. What do you think? I think uh, the what's happening within the Chinese Communist Party uh, can precipitate change. You have a, a major conflict with uh, basically uh, two factions within the Chinese Communist Party. And the first is with the present uh, president, uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, now, he is uh, has his his strongest base within the Chinese military. Now opposed to him is a former leader of, of China named Zhang Zemin. Now uh, Zhang Zemin has his uh, strength within the police and the internal security forces. Now they come from 
actually different uh, power bases in China. Xi Jinping comes from the uh, uh, Shanxi province, which is more in central China, whereas uh, Jiang Zemin comes from the area around Shanghai uh, on, on the coast. So I, I think if we're going to see uh, a major change in China, it could be precipitated and come out of this conflict between these two major power bases uh, inside of China. Talk about the body politic in China here, okay? Uh, this author says, uh, Roger Garside says, the body politic of China is terminally ill. And, and I've heard multiple reports about this here in the network. And that's why I'm asking you, Colonel Selling, do you see, do you subscribe to the same theory? He says, only a transplant can save the body politic, and the only other system uh, to offer is a competitive democracy. Speaking about the China people, uh, he, he, he has some pretty interesting thoughts in this China coup book he's suggesting here. And he says, ever since 2011, the regime uh, has been spending more on its budget on internal security than it has on the military. Uh, it's fear of internal enemies. And he has multiple points he brings up as to why. And then, of course, we know the economic conditions out there. We know the housing market is tough. We know the COVID, the death rate. A lot of things have happened out there that has changed the landscape as well. How do you see that as a threat? The internal struggles of China and the decimation of life there uh, coming forward. Well, I do, what we're seeing now is oppression. They're, they're, in fact, losing control, which is why they're implementing this uh, social credit system within China is, is really to con control the people. They're using, you know, facial identification and other measures, uh, 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 you know, monitoring cell phones and where people are going and what they're doing and giving them social credit scores really to control their, their behavior. And this comes out of the fact that they're actually losing control of the population and the more pressure that they put on the people uh, eventually they're going to rebel it's the same thing that's been happening in in canada now with the uh the truckers uh opposing the uh, uh trudeau regime in canada that the more pressure that the uh people like trudeau uh, put on re more restrictions and oppression they put on the people of Canada, the more they're going to rebel. I think that we may see the same type of, mm -hmm. uh, of action in China, which is uh, why they're putting in this social credit system and other oppressive measures inside China because they're losing control. Right. That's a great point. The, the social credit score, the things they're looking at now, there's even been talking about doing that here in America, for God's sakes. But you're right. Uh, th those are a lot of the conditions out there. You, you think that could happen in our lifetime? Again, I don't know. I, you know, it's, it's so hard to predict these things. I never thought that the uh, Berlin Wall would go down and the Soviet Union would fall, but it happened basically overnight in terms of, you know, uh, yeah. in terms of history. We could see the same thing uh, happen in China. We know they're having very much, very, a lot of difficulty with their economy, especially this real estate market, mm -hmm. which is totally collapsing. So if there's uh, economic strain, which in fact President Trump had put on. Uh, on China during his years in office. Uh, if we see any more economic pressure on, uh, on China, uh, the people are going to feel it and they're beginning to rebel against the you know, authoritarian rule coming from Beijing.
Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I so appreciate your um, your your analysis, but also, uh, Colonel Sellon, your authenticity in how you answer those questions. You, it's it's refreshing just to give you that because. Uh, you don't uh, speculate on speculation on the total unknown. You're exactly right. Same case with when we talk about the Ukraine, Russia, who, who really does know how these things really fall out? I mean, we can guess and this and that, but it really is a guess at the end of the day. The last piece of information I'd like to have your thoughts on is is this. And, and this, this kind of puts it all into a package in my mind. And it's this. <clears throat> I think that... Uh, our political class here in America and DC, I'm speaking about left and right. I think they really uh, um, have messed this up with Putin and Russia. I'm not talking just Biden here. I'm talking our government as a whole. I think we've missed some real big opportunities here. And it's played out throughout the Trump years. That all happened, ridiculing Russia and rubbing their nose into it and acting like fools like we asked with all that bad dossier stuff and all that garbage that went on. And it really was an embarrassing situation. Instead of partnering with Russia, which we could have easily done, now we're seeing images coming out of the Olympics and we're seeing other things that we I knew was going to happen with Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. Uh, buddy it up, which you knew they hate each other, but by sure they'll take America down and be buddies for a little while uh, at the Olympics for public perception. What do you make of this? And what is the real threat now? I mean, we really, I'm going to say to you this, we really screwed this up. This is my opinion now. I don't know if you, I mean, based on the fact that we got Vladimir and Xi, uh, you know, having coffee with each other and what gives? Well, you know, I think you're right about the elites in Washington, D.C., the, especially the Democrat Party. They began believing their own Russian hoax and, and are now are imagining that uh, Vladimir Putin is behind every terrible thing uh, that's happening in the world. So they're being really, uh, you know, foolish about this and fact delusional about it uh we could have had a better relationship with russia and president trump tried to do that in the beginning of his administration and this whole russia hoax thing uh you know uh stopped that uh and now we're in a situation where we're approaching war with russia and all the things that we've been doing uh since in the last five years or so and it's coming out of the uh, Democrat Party and also the um, certain members of the Republican Party were simply pushing Russia into the arms of, of China, which is a, an incredibly a stupid strategic thing to do. Yeah. So you, you agree with the analysis then. Uh, but perhaps I was just a little more vivid with the explanation, but you also agree with it. Uh, Colonel Lawrence Sellen, it is always uh, my privilege and uh, for us to have you on here. Thank you for joining us on The Viewpoint this Sunday. Thank you, Malcolm. My friends, that is a wrap from here. What a what a terrific program here. Tremendous thank you to Dr. Peter McCullough, front of the program here, uh, Colonel Lawrence Sellen. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, nobody ever said the truth feels good, but you've got a lot of truth today. I will tell you that uh, you, you've heard it straight on here. Uh, thank you for joining us and being part of the mission here, my fellow Americans here. We'll see you back at AmericaOutloud.com. It's time to get involved and get loud.